Welcome to my conversation facilitation house, Johnny Pollard, who's a beautiful man, friend of mine, very dear. He's a what the Indians call a guru because he shines light on darkness and he is all around snazzy motherfucker who's awake as shit. His main occupation is being a meditation teacher, which he actually taught me Vedic meditation. So I would I 100 would recommend all. Hello, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Jeremy. <laughs> I always feel so happy around you. <laughs> As we know, these podcasts, who knows where they'll go? I don't. <laughs> you don't. No one does. But I'm interested in the conversation around everyone's perception of God at the moment. But I'd love to get your perspective or wisdom on on what what it actually is in a more you know, you know, right because I, I am the absolute authority <laughs> no, 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 no just because i i think people have this idea of a guy with a beard up in the cloud and it's a he and all these ideas like kind of just reducing it back to the essence as far back as you know or can sense as to what this energy is that we deem to be god and how it's become framed in the way it has been framed and then largely misunderstood in the way it's been misunderstood. And I'd also love to understand the perspective of an atheist as well. Well, (laughs) I'd like to preface all of this with, you know, (laughs) this is just my opinion. (laughs) And, you know, I can obviously only give it an opinion based on the limited insights that I have from investigating it, you know, generally. Yeah. I think that there is an infinite array of interpretations of what God may or may not be. And included within that is either an acceptance of it or a rejection of it. I think everybody has a notion of the concept of God and one either accepts that in some way and is seeking the experience of it or on the other hand, somebody is has an understanding of the notion of a God or God, and is rejecting it for whatever reason. And they fall into that category of atheist. I can only really talk about this subject from my own personal perspective and Mm. experience. I've always had a sense of what we refer to as God. So, you know, right from a a very young age, uh, my parents weren't religious. I was baptised Church of England Uh, But that was just because that's what the family did, you know, Mm. and that was the only recollection of anything religious that we did is, well, and I don't have any recollection of it because I was just a little fat baby (laughs) that they dunked in the (laughs) the water. And I lived across the road from, from a Catholic school. And so it was the most convenient place for me to go to school. My sister and I went there, St. Michael's in Meadowbank in Sydney. Mm. And, um, it was uh, pretty pretty tough for me uh, because I really embraced um, this this notion of God and like as a as a really little kid, you know, I go to school every morning and before I go and play handball in the um, playground before the school bells rang, mm. which is what we all did, fierce competition. I'd always go to the the church that was in the school and I'd just sit there. And pray for forgiveness for what you're about to beat. Whip the asses yeah. of the other kids. <laughs> oh Lord, have mercy on them. <laughs> Heal their sorrows as I destroy them on the. 
and the handball court. Nine year old. Yeah. No, no, I'm talking five and six. Yeah, wow. Kindergarten, like very young. Right. I just walk on in there. Yeah. And I it was kicked like, their ass. This was, a, yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking about in the church. Yeah. I walk in, I felt very free walking into the church. And this was before I had any conception of what that place was. Or I knew that it was a place where people went to connect with God. Mm. And I was kind of already doing that. And I thought, well, you know, if there's a, a, a purpose-built house that you go and do it, then why not go do that? That's kind of groovy. Mm. Mm. You're already doing that at five. Mm-hmm. In what ways? Just talking, you know, mm. like before I go to sleep every night, I was just, I would be having a conversation with something that I sensed was all pervasive, that was intelligent and was a, a governing force. That's that's the that's the, the the simplest way to put it. Mm. It had no face. It had no real personality, other than just a, a warmth and a joy in my heart. Mm. It was just prevalent. It wasn't something cultivated. It wasn't. It was just there, mm. and I, I don't have any memory of it not being there. Mm. And so, when I went to school, being a Protestant in a Catholic school, and the school was run by nuns. They, they made it really clear that there were absolute constraints and limitations in the level of my participation uh, of what took place there, at least religiously. Right. And I felt a sense of being ostracized. You know, the, you, when, when everyone went up to do, receive Holy Communion, I wasn't allowed to, you know, my sister and I and a handful of others, you know, would just be kind of everyone would get up and go down the aisle and whatever and we'd just be sitting there kind of going, why can't we do this? Mm. You know, why, why doesn't Jesus accept me? <laughs> and <laughs> and it, it always was, you know, very disturbing to me because I was so devout in my own heart, not necessarily mm. to a Christian God or, you know, the whole Christian way, but just, you know, I come here all the time. I, why don't I belong? And mm. so it, my, my relationship with the, with the experience of God became deeply conflicted with the idea of God. Right. And what I started to realize was that uh, there were actually, you know, two different things, you know, there's the experience and then there's the idea and what was being <coughs> taught at school was the idea of God. Mm. There, was, I, there was no evidence whatsoever that anybody that was participating in this whole procession that happened every week or mm. twice a week mm. or whatever was actually in any state of communion. With a, you know, on a direct experience. Experience, level. yeah, like connecting. It just felt like this thing that everybody did and mm. the nuns were very cranky, mm. um, uh, verging on being quite mean. <laughs> The head priest was very cold, yeah. hyper-authoritarian, didn't feel a, a sense of warmth from him at all mm. and was just very confused. I'm like, mm. I don't understand. Like for me it was all very playful and joyful and light and beautiful. Mm. And so I... Is, is that because in your direct experience it it was of what, acceptance, warmth, love and those... It was just the, my spirit. Like yeah. that, that was my experience of this thing. Mm. It was a light, joyful, playful, beautiful, uh, liberating force that right. I would take refuge in through anxiety, through sadness, through anger, whatever. I'd, mm. I'd find myself just innocently taking refuge in this, mm. in this experience in my heart. 
<clears throat> what took you to that place each time or what what made you aware that it was even there? Can you remember the first few times? You, it, it, nothing made me aware other than <clears throat> itself. It, it's all pervasive. Right. It's more odd when I lost awareness of it. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but it I'm just always to re- there. It's related like- to people that haven't had that direct experience, and particularly from a young age. Like it seems to you have got the channel open. You're, you know, to, mm. or your well, we'll get we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. You know, because actually that's my life's work now is you know leading people to have the direct experience of this thing. You know, so anyway, mm. Sorry, so to create context around the term God, in terms of how I use it, which is very rarely. Mm. As as I went through the education, the, the Catholic education system, and felt increasingly more disgruntled with the preaching tone being completely uh, mismatched with behaviour, you know the way in which what they preached and they described Jesus's life and you know the relevance of his teachings and whatever and 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 zero embodiment. Mm. There was no embodiment from any of the teachers or the priests or anything. And I'm sure this was just you know this particular part of the world that I was living in. I'm sure there there are really wonderful embodied Catholics in the yeah. world, and there are, and I know many now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had no experience of that. There was no kindness. <laughs> It was just, it was tough. It was mean. And then I went to an all boys school, Maris Brothers, for two years. And I found myself increasingly feeling more isolated, alienated, disconnected, not mm. not belonging. And um, a series of events occurred and, you know, I was kindly asked to leave. I wasn't mm. expelled, but I was asked mm. to leave. Mm. And it was as a result of me questioning. You had butted someone during war balls. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I got into a lot of fights. Yeah. I was I was constantly fighting. Yeah, right. Um, Why? I, I was a bit of a bully magnet, mm. but I also was one of those people that refused to be picked on mm. and, um, and so fought back and often, mm. you know, was fighting back people tw- twice the size of me mm. <laughs> and getting my, getting, <laughs> getting pummeled, <laughs> but you know, still high spirited yeah, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. What a spirit. You will not defeat me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And every now and then I get a sneaky put, you know, mm. punch in that'd give them a cut lip or, you know, an eye or whatever. And then they go to the teachers and, they dob me in. Yeah, right. And anyway, I, I earned a bit of a reputation as being, you know, a bit of a... Hard as nails. What, whatever. Well, not so much hard as nails, just a troublemaker. Yeah, right. And actually, I honestly didn't feel like I was a troublemaker. I was just, you know, for some reason, I just kept attracting these guys that just... And they're all older, like, in, yeah. you know, four or five years older than me. And I just had one of those faces that they wanted to kind of, <laughs> I don't know, they, they were very unhappy guys, yeah, you know, yeah. they were very angry and whatever and they just went for me. Anyway, yeah. so I, I ended up having to to leave that school and yeah. I went to a co-ed school and that was quite liberating. But uh, after I left Marish Brothers, I couldn't say the word God. I couldn't, mm. it would it, it, it'd give me a, almost a, a, a nausea. A sense of just, it'd bring up so much stuff. And it was the concept or the ideation of God. However, the experience of God was still absolutely what I, what we're talking about here. And I'm going to mm-hmm. go to some length to describe what God is to mm-hmm. me so that, um, you know, mm-hmm. the people listening to this can at least understand what I mean by that. Yeah. And I'm absolutely not referring to, you know, a white bearded man in the clouds, mm-hmm. specifically anyway, you know. Because it can be that for somebody and that's fine. Anyway, I, over 
you know, my teenage years, you know, was quite agitated, let's say, mm. by not only the the hypocrisy of, you know, the institution, the education institution, particularly the Catholic education institution. I started to kind of pull back and look at the world and go, oh, my goodness, everyone's very, very confused. Mm. You know, you know, we're, we're, we're entrenched in hypocrisy um, where people are saying one thing and doing another. I started noticing it with all the adults in my life, you know, not necessarily my parents. My parents were really, mm. really wonderful people, mm. uh, really wonderful people. Mm. And so I had them as like a rudder and a reference point, but I noticed that most adults were terribly unhappy and that were projecting their pessimism and cynicism of life on us mm. <laughs> at school and whatever. Mm. And I just, uh, I just felt so disjointed mm. and displaced. And um, that sent me on a very personal quest to discover what it was that I felt inherently that seemed to be missing in the experience of most people that I was encountering. And on, a, on the occasion, I would meet somebody who I felt had that, that warmth in their heart and we just connect so easily and, mm. and have that beautiful connection and we'd, we'd be able to develop that that relationship. Mm. And, and subsequently I, I developed very, very deep and beautiful and powerful friendships in my, in my mid teens that, you know, are lasting to this day, you mm. know, really beautiful, powerful brotherhoods and sisterhoods, you know, with, with like, like kindred spirits. Mm. And we share a same, a sentiment about, you know, the, the nature of reality and, and what's important, uh, you know, about the expression of our humanity. Mm. So, that was a, little, a bit of a bit of context to talk about, you know, what God is mm. for me, and what what God is for me mm. is first and foremost an experience of my deepest nature. Mm. The word God for me is, or the the concept of God, is an all pervasive, unified field of intelligence that conceives and constructs reality, and has a, an omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent consciousness that is simultaneously organizing everything that's happening in the, the, the physical and non-physical universe. And what that is, is everything. When somebody asks me, what is God? I say, well, what is God not? You know, for God to be God, in my opinion, it has to be everything all pervasive. Mm. There's no way that it is not. Mm. It is the, the manifest and simultaneously the unmanifest. And so what does that mean as a human being in terms of being able to have a relationship with this field of intelligence? It only requires that I develop a very deep and intimate relationship with the phenomenon of my own existence to just become aware that I exist and to allow my, the faculty of self-inquiry to probe ever deeper into the nature of the experience I'm having right now. And this is why I'm a huge proponent of meditation mm. because meditation creates the conditions in my own nervous system and in my brain and my awareness state to develop sensory acuity the sharpening of the senses to probe ever deeper into subtler dimensions of the experience of the present moment. And I've been very devoted to that for the last, let's say, 25 years. 
And what my senses have yielded are and yield right now as we speak is a knowingness of my very being as an eternal event. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's something that is a constant. There is at the baseline of my experience of who I am, there is a constant knowingness, an awareness that I am. It defies conceptual um, understanding in any complete way. We don't come to understand the phenomenon of isness, of existence, through any concept, any linear concept. Mm. We can only know it through the direct experience. And that direct experience is something that finds its seat in my heart, mm. in my chest, as an abstract sense of completeness. Mm. It's, a, it's a wholeness. That's a powerful, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And that was the thing that I was feeling as a child mm. that was non-conceptual, mm. that was forced to become conceptual to some degree. Okay. So that, that's the interesting thing where how it comes up to the surface level or needs to be linear, linearized, however. Seems, delineated, yeah. Delineated. Yeah. And that's in some effort what science is doing as well to, to understand or give it, paint a conceptual picture that we can is more universally tangible mm-hmm. because like anyone that has the deeper level of experience of reality, mm. it's hard to translate. Yeah, and, it is. Yeah. And science is absolutely extraordinary, as we all know, like every instrument that we're interacting with here to record this <coughs> and trans- transmit it to the world is all the byproduct of curious minds using the, the discipline of the scientific methodology. Mm. However, the challenge that science faces is that it's dehumanized. The very notion of subjective experience is a a fundamental spanner in the works for the scientific process because it requires objectivity. Mm. But what science is in denial of is the inextricable subjective experience of objectifying (laughs) because we only ever can be objective. This is a glass. You know, we're being objective here. Both of us, we're looking at it. We, do you concur? This yeah, is yeah, a, this, yeah. Is, this is a glass. Yeah. If I was that glass in state of consciousness, I'd be like, that's a couple of humans. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so how do we know that that's a glass? We can only know that that's a glass through the agency of our subjective consciousness. Right. And so whatever we are being objective about, mm. we're using subjectivity, our own personal state of consciousness mm. in order to determine that that's a glass. Mm. And so the scientific paradigm are in complete and utter denial, not right across the board. There are a lot of emerging mm. fields of science that are taking into consideration the, the principle mm. of subjective consciousness and mm. how that fits into the model of the physical reality, like to determine what the laws of nature are. Mm. What science is seeking to do is to define a unified theory of what the universe is, how it works, and what our role is in this. Mm. You know, and, and so this is a very contentious issue in this day and age, you know, being able to understand reality, you know, what science is hoping to do is to try and have an objective understanding of reality. I'm, I'm entirely convinced that in order for science to take the leap to truly understand the, the whole picture, they themselves have to 
explore the inner reality. And Einstein, for example, he knew this inherently, and he would constantly talk about the, the principle of imagination, which is what, he, what he's really referring to is consciousness, the inner landscape of his subjective experience, whereby he was able to have a direct cognition of the different laws by which he became famous for defining the theory of relativity. Mm. He would say that he would abandon linear thinking and just allow his mind to wander. Mm-hmm. And in that mm. state, he would conceive of the law of relativity. He would be able to, to just perceive it. It wasn't just a, a formula of mm. mathematical equations mm. that were understood through some linear progression mm. of, of an algorithm. Mm. It was a cognition, a, an experience in his own consciousness. His imagination yielded the dimensions so of, of the law yeah. and he conceived of it within, within his own subjective state of consciousness That's an- and then went about trying to create some sort of objective framework for, framework it. for it. And it was, you know, it was, it was like some, it was like two, two decades before somebody was able to do some sort of experiment where they were watching, you know, a star on the horizon line and, mm. you know, they were, to understand, you know, really Hard whether his theory would stack up. And right. as it turns out, it did. It wasn't totally complete, but yeah. um, it did. But, you know, what, what most people don't understand is that he arrived at, the insights about the nature of reality just by sitting gently and one would call it meditation Mm. um, and and had a direct insight. Mm. And the reality is that all the great inventions, (laughs) Mm. all of this arose in somebody's consciousness. They had a creative cognition. They had an, uh, oh, if I put that and that together and do that, Mm. then I could create that. Let's give it a go. Mm. All of the wonderful things that we see in this world emerge out of an, a, a subjective, a abstract, creative pool that, um, that uh, mm. organizes itself on the level of our thinking. It's so cool when it, you put it like that. Yeah. It's so clear then if you want to create or manifest from that deep distill down to the very bottom and then see where it bubbles up from. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's just your relationship to be able to explore that field and then manifest from. So you're kind of co-creating with the field of God, if you want to call it that. or The field of cosmic intelligence. Cosmic so I, I, I refer to God mm. as, you know, cosmic intelligence. Yeah. And cosmic is a term used to describe everything on the most minute micro level to the most macro, the cosmos. It includes the, the, the most minute, you know, quantum particle of my physiology mm. all the way into the subtler dimensions of our consciousness, which we don't really have measurement for, mm, but mm, consciousness mm. is present, so mm. we have to include it. Mm. So the word cosmos includes the subtlest of subtle consciousness experiences all the way to the most gross cosmological planetary phenomenon, you know, mm, the mm, gaseous star. Man, it's nuts. And so cosmic intelligence, the word intelligence is a word to describe the uniformity, the the intuitive uniformity of the uh, or the motion or the mechanics of the the universe what we conceive of as being the universe or the cosmos and so cosmic intelligence is an all-pervasive intelligence and it's pretty hard to deny that the universe is intelligent (laughs) and that it's computing capability is inconceivable 
to us mm. on the level of our normal thinking and processing. Yeah. You know, just... And about, lifespan and perspective. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's there's no word for it. Mm. They're now speculating there there is a immeasurable amount of processes that are taking place inside our physiology in every second. Mm. Mm. And the level of intelligence that's required to govern... Oh, man. The, 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 all the different processes taking place, like hundreds of trillions of processes, yeah. there is some intelligence that's overseeing the whole thing and correlating all the different activities mm. with all the different activities. Mm. And the, the, the combinations and permutations of variability of how one thing could do one thing and then cause an effect to all the other hundred trillion things, mm. it, it's infinite. Mm. It's infinite. So therefore we are governed by an infinite intelligence. And this mm. is a mathematical fact yeah, it's not. that we're governed by just our individual physiology is governed by an infinite intelligence. And so this was all really wonderful for me to discover because it correlated with this intuitive sense that there was, there was no, there was no end. It was boundless. Like when I when I allow my attention to to connect with that wholeness and completeness, the experience is an expansion of self. It, it extends beyond my physical body. It extends into you, into everything I put my attention on. And I, I have a palpable sensation that everything is an emergent phenomenon mm. of this underlying intelligence and that this underlying intelligence has no end to it. It's infinite in its vastness, but it's infinite in its complexity and its intelligence and processing power. It's mm. infinite in every conceivable way mm. in terms of time, space, in terms of processing capability, mm. all of that. And so I, I was very fortunate to, when I, when I first took my first adventure to India, to discover an ancient body of knowledge known as the Vedas which is a, an ancient science of consciousness, which takes into consideration that consciousness is primary to all things. Our consciousness is primary to matter. Our consciousness is primary to our body. Our consciousness conceives our body. It's our mind and our consciousness state that determines the, the, the condition of our body and the condition of our world. It is the, the agency or the vehicle by which we are in relationship with everything that appears to be other than us. The, the fundamental premise within the Vedic tradition is to master one's capability to be in relationship with everything that is perceived as being other. And through developing intimacy in that relationship, the, the pinnacle experience is to actually have a merger where what is conceived of as other can be experienced on the level of the senses as extended self, as an experience of me. So the more I spend time with you and we become intimately acquainted with the, the moment and the, the, the reality of each other's desires to connect and we, we fulfill those desires by listening to each other and creating a subtle framework by which we can connect, the more we do that, the more intimate we are in our awareness of each other, something extraordinary happens. The lines between our individuality start to blur 
and we start to conceive of each other as the same thing. Mm-hmm. We start to recognize the subtler our awareness within the, the, the experience of connecting, being in relationship occurs, we start to recognize that we're one and the same thing. And this is actually, I would like to propose, the thing that every human being is craving. And so, so we don't diverge off the original question. Mm. You know, for me, God is the embodied experience of connection with anything and everything that I put my attention on whereby I am able to merge with it. So is it the and process of love then? Yes, it is the process of love, exactly. Mm. Yeah, and love is our nature. Mm. What we're desiring most is to connect as deeply and intimately with everything that we behold, anything that we put in our attention. Our deepest nature is to, is to merge. So from the Vedic perspective, mm. the, the, the game that we're playing here is the unity game. We have been indoctrinated into a way of being where our senses yield the reality of separateness. The reality is material and we are separate from each other. Mm-hmm. And the name of the Vedic game is to discover how to give life to the experience of unity which is what we inherently feel in our hearts. We know we belong to each other. Humanity knows it belongs to itself. It belongs to the earth. It knows it. And we know this because when we violate that, we feel something very uncomfortable <laughs> yeah, in yeah. our hearts, True. our conscience. Yeah. It, this is why it's difficult to kill each other. Yeah. It's not easy to kill another human being. Mm-hmm. So when somebody else kills another human being, they have to be in such a distorted state of consciousness so removed, disconnected from their nature. And we, we see that happening everywhere on the planet right now. And then this scale of that destruction or distortion, there's lots of different levels to that all the yes. way back to the just how we treat ourselves badly or treat someone else badly. So. Yes, exactly. That's the extreme end of it, mm. you know, taking somebody else's life or destroying nature. Mm. And in the subtler dimension, it's just self-loathing, <laughs> feeling ashamed to be alive, feeling worthless feeling unlovable. And these are all byproducts of being indoctrinated into a culture, a society, a way of being whereby that's the norm. So this creates the context for God from my perspective. You know, what's the role of God? What's the role of cosmic intelligence? The role of cosmic intelligence to to define our why. You know, why are we here on earth? What's this whole thing about? The whole experience of being human, as far as I'm concerned, is about fulfilling our deepest desire to actualize that experience of unity. And that is to connect deeply with each other or with ourselves first and foremost, and then with each other. And in that process of connection, because it's a process, not an outcome, we don't just connect and then go, okay, we did that. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing, it's a continuum And in that process, recognize how we can serve each other to grow, to grow into deeper states of connection. Mm. And then to celebrate through the responsibility of belonging. And what I mean by that is recognizing that we are inherently of the same thing. And that when we disregard the needs 
of everyone and everything around us and we're only serving our own needs, we're, we're doing ourselves a, an enormous disservice. We will never experience full, true fulfillment in this life whilst ever there is acute neediness around us. And so that third principle of celebrating our responsibility of belonging is the act of being devoted to this principle that we belong to a whole thing. And to me, that's what God is. Mm. You know, I'm served when someone says, you know, I refer to it as being in devotion to the sacredness of life. Mm. But that could be translated to, you know, I'm devoted to the service of God. Mm. And again, going back to my original definition, mm. God is everything. It's mm. all processes taking place within the universe. Mm. And to what degree do I have an intimate relationship with those processes mm. and can I harmonize myself with them in order to maximize my capacity to connect with you right now mm. and to grow with you, to share in what we're experiencing, to gain greater insight, greater capability, greater innovation capacity, to evolve the experience of fulfilling this desire to belong mm. to it. And that's it. That's all it's really about. Man, you're a powerful motherfucker. <laughs> Seriously. Like, I feel like I love, to me, what it reads as is that you've got a very true understanding of what reality is, what it is to exist, and you're honoring it. And kind of that's it. Yeah. Like living it. Because yeah. what else is there to do? Mm. Live in anxiety, live in fear, mm. live with self-loathing, live with a sense of unworthiness, a sense of powerlessness, which is what it really comes down to. Yeah. You know, the belief that we are powerless is the greatest human tragedy. And I dedicate my entire life to as elegantly and as simply as possible reminding as many people that are willing to listen <laughs> that they are immensely powerful to create fulfillment in their life and that fulfillment is something that is so simple and so subtle and available right here, right now to experience if they're willing to let go of the narrative, the mm. delusion that they are powerless and that they are not responsible mm. to the greater whole. And you're saying it's a delusion because it's a, a surface level paradigm or how would you? In the context of powerlessness, a delusion is, is the belief that we are powerless to free ourselves um, from fear, from right. feeling trapped Powerlessness is just an idea. Right. I'm, I'm not power. I can't change the world. I can't, I can't liberate myself from my own suffering. Yeah. This is a belief. It's an idea that has nothing to do with the truth of what we are. The truth of what we are is that we are inherently love and that experience is available just beneath the surface of the dissonance that's generated by the belief. Okay. When we, we, we are remarkable as, as creatures where we can disconnect from our inherent nature. We can trivialize our nature. Mm. It's extraordinary. Mm, we can it? ignore it, forget it, deny it. And the only thing that's required of us to free ourselves and to become immensely powerful human beings is to stop ignoring what we are and make the choice to relinquish the delusion that we are powerless and to face the noise of unworthiness of guilt and shame and sadness and pain and, and resentment and disappointment and all the things that we, all these feelings that we've accumulated through this life 
if we're willing to face that noise and just move through it with a surrender, mm. a, a surrender to a knowingness mm. that our deeper nature is love. And because it's our nature, it's always there. It's always there. This is, this is a truth that is available to absolutely everybody. We know it. It's just that we have become so entrenched in the belief that we're something other than that, mm. that creates the, the dissonance in us, the discomfort. And why do you think that's come about, this doctrine in our culture? Ignorance? Yeah. It's a byproduct of millennia. I mean, from the Vedic perspective, you know, they have a very long calendar of events <laughs> and they, they define the human existence within cycles or ages and different cycles and ages create conditions for humanity to further discover and explore what it means to be human. And sometimes this part of the game is, all right, kids, we're going to turn the lights out. <laughs> all right, here they go. And now just work out how to get around in the dark. And in the Vedic tradition, it's mm. called Kali Yuga. It's, it's an age of ignorance or an age of darkness. And we're in an age of darkness. The it's light evolution then. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's all evolution. Mm. Everything is eminently reconcilable mm. right now. Uh, we're forever able to reconcile. Correct. Mm. Whatever we conceive of as being irreconcilable is only a lack of dexterity of our consciousness. Uh, an unwillingness to surrender into the heart where the reality of unity is the dominant reality. Mm. And when we are fully surrendered to love in our heart, there is nothing that we cannot reconcile. Mm. And the only thing that stops us from reconciliation, from resolving, is a rigid attachment to a particular position. Mm. I'm, I'm holding That's a position. That's the only thing. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing. All in conflicts in this world yeah. are generated and sustained by a rigid attachment to an ideology, a perspective or opinion. And it's only when we can let go of that, surrender to love in our hearts and recognize that we belong to each other as our greatest responsibility, will we be able to resolve. And the reality is that all the problems on earth right now are very easily resolvable if we can bring ourselves to let go, but and, that's, that's our greatest challenge. And why are the people that are influencing a lot of the control and structures, why are they so rigidly attaching, clinging on? Like what is it in their nature? Well, it's not so much in their nature that's making them do that. It's a condition. Okay. Um, they're afraid. Fear is a powerful thing. Ignorance is a powerful thing. They're at a certain part of their evolutionary journey whereby they're they're really dominated by fear. Do we change the person in power? Is it best to start with the collective or is it best to go to the top and then drip feed outward? Yeah. So this transformation. Yeah, I know what this. you're getting at. Yeah. And, and what your questioning is, is probing what's the causal level of our societal dysfunction yeah. and should we be looking for individuals in positions of power that seem to be influencing culture and point the finger at them and go, mm -hmm. it's you. What, what needs transformation is the way in which we are in relationship with ourselves and each other. Let's be very specific about what needs transformation. Yeah. What needs transformation is the quality of our relationship. And the quality of our relationships are always determined by our intention. Is my intention to love you or is my intention to be strategic in the way that I can 
utilize this relationship to get something out of you. I'd to, hate it if you did that to me. Yeah, yeah so I promise <laughs> I won't. But, but, but this, is, this is what's going on. Yeah. Am I going to use you yeah. to further my, my way up the social status ladder, yeah. which is what we conceive of as being the most precious thing, social status. Yeah. We believe that that's where we acquire our power and our freedom. Right. And, you know, this is one of the greatest delusions. Yeah. I can, uh, I can even personally relate to that. I'm like, of course you th- can. There's a big part of my brain that goes, oh, that makes sense because I can see it around me. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an obvious conditioning. Yeah. But it's not true power. It's influence, but it's not true power. Mm. And generally people that are in power, that have gained their power through external status, are creating a big mess. <laughs> and we've got countless examples of that. Mm. So what transformation is, is the transformation of our intent. Right. Am I going to use you? Am I going to take from you what I think I need? Or am I going to put myself in a position of service to the responsibility of belonging to you? With my intention to love. So rephrase that because I think that's a really important way to describe the sequence of intent. If we shift our intention from looking at the world as something that is here to give us something, and this is why most people are very dissatisfied with life, is because they have an expectation for life to give them something as opposed to what can I I give the world? How can I be of service to Mm. you, world? And this is actually the source of fulfillment mm. is the way by which we are able to make ourselves a vessel to give because that's all nature's doing. It's oh, serving man. itself. I love it. Even, even you just saying those words and me feeling the first one and then feeling the second one, my whole being felt lighter just by you actually spitting the words out. Yeah, yeah. Like the, just embodying the notion that I'm here, I'm a vessel to give. Yeah. Because I know, I, know, I know that truth in me. I know when I've experienced that directly in, my, in isolation. I know when I've done it and felt it and I know when I've not done it and felt the, I need to do something, you know, like I need to get or, or even I even go so far as complicating the whole process and going, I think I'm given, but really I'm doing it to make myself feel better. You know, like there's a whole array of, it's cunning that, um, that conditioning, you know, it's, it really is cunning yeah. and calculating <laughs> and strategic and it's exhausting Yeah, it's and, definitely exhausting. and, it, and it's terribly inconsistent and, yep. it, and it seldom satisfies us. Yeah. And all it's ever really feeding is an idea of who we think we are as opposed to what we are yeah. and what we are is love. And so when we transform our relationships by leading, Leading with the question, how can I be of service with the intention to love? That refines the agency by which our intention is channeled. It's through our attention, Mm. the degree in which I am able to sustain my attention on you and continue listening, relinquishing the condition of feeling like I need to get something from you and just sit with the desire to want to connect Mm -hmm. and grow with you and Mm -hmm. belong as the primary objective, then I am immediately liberated. Mm. I'm, I'm liberated from fear. I'm liberated from the anxiety of whether I'm maximizing this opportunity with you right now to get everything I need out of you to get to where I need to get to next. Mm-hmm. I'm just simply innocently being in this moment with you mm. and allowing the moment to unfold and inform us more deeply of who and what we are. And it's a paradigm shift. It's a, it's a quantum leap from the way in which we normally operate. The way we normally operate is from a needy, from a needy desperate mm. um, position when we mm. can relinquish that and just surrender in the moment to this notion that we have the capacity to have this extraordinary experience of deep connection mm. and growing together and a sense of belonging. Now, to get to that point, 
often requires that, well, it demands that we move into our heart. Mm. And the issue with this is that most of us are carrying around a lot of pain and stress and anxiety from the past, a lot of self-doubt and uh, self-loathing and unworthiness. Moving into that discomfort, you know, it requires us allowing ourselves to be vulnerable for a moment. Mm. And, you know, vulnerability in the whole self-help movement at the moment, personal development, spiritual sort of thing, it's, mm. it's very trendy and it's mm. great. Mm. Um, and vulnerability is a very powerful thing to allow ourselves to experience. However, for those of you who are kind of like, yeah, fuck vulnerability, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's a phase transition. It's just like having to cross a very cold, chilly, torrenting river stream that feels mm. a little bit, treacherous and scary, but you have the ability to pass through that river stream and get onto the other side of the bank. If you're just willing to brave the cold and I assure you that there's somebody on the other side of the bank with a very warm, cozy blanket and a nice fire and some marshmallows or whatever it is that you find yummy that you can sit down and enjoy and start really being Mm. here in the moment. Mm. But you have to pass through that discomfort of getting into your heart. And this is a very important sequence to understand the process of because a lot of people I find, me myself included, are looking for a, a practical way to find truth, find your own guide back to your heart, find an ability to just discern between what is tripping me up and what is true, what I want and what I don't want. And like we said before, it's a very cunning, cloudy world of conditioning that we're in and ignorance that we're in. So it comes in all shapes and colors and and it's part of our mental framework and it's really hard to discern the difference between what's real and what's not. And I still, I get myself tripped up. Yeah. And so this is where, you know, the practices of meditation and other beautiful practices come into play. They're exercises that strengthen the, the muscles of our true nature. And so it becomes easier to discern the difference between what is true and what is false. Meditation specifically is a, a beautiful practice that enables the mind to, to go beyond the level of thinking that governs our delusions and access directly a deeper experience of the self that transcends ideas and just completely imbues the senses with an experience of what the self is. Mm. And the more that we do that, our biology starts to transform the way in which our brain is structured in our delusion and dysfunction immediately starts to transform. It, it creates infrastructure to, to facilitate a perspective of reality that directly correlates with our deepest nature right. of love. Yeah. You know, we can transform the brain so that it it houses the experience of love. But we have to exercise that. And this is the original context of meditation, Mm. to deliver us into the direct experience of the self and to transform the hardware so it can run the software of love. Mm. But you've got to run that that program that, that uh, it's almost like an antivirus scan, mm. you know, where we're scanning and, and dissolving uh, the conditioning of the belief that we're, mm. we're not lovable, mm. that we're not powerful. Mm. And so uh, a really simple practice, which is, you know, very much expressed in great detail in my upcoming book, <laughs> The Four Golden Insights, <laughs> to be released in September 2018. Very exciting. <laughs> um, is that the first time you've publicly announced that? 
Yes, it is. Good. Yay. <laughs> I tricked you into it. Yeah, you no, did. <laughs> which I've read a bunch of and it just lights you off. It's powerful, practical ways to sequence yourself back to a state of love. Yeah. And you've done it with me directly as well. Like it's just that surrender and, and feel it and sit with it. And then by shining your eyes on it, it actually disintegrates yeah. the blockage. Yes. Coming back to the original question, because I think we should, you know, put a bookend on it. Yeah. The concept of God, mm. I described it as cosmic intelligence as a, a label, mm. but really what it is, is, is the experience of sacredness mm. for me. And sacredness is anything that reflects back the truth of who I am, mm. my true power to reconcile anything and to experience unity with anything, mm. to see the sameness in absolutely everything and anything. And to me, that is sacred. And what I found on my journey of cultivating sacredness is that, as I said before, there's nothing that we can behold that we do not feel a sense of belonging to mm. if we are willing to surrender beyond our defensive position of a thing mm. and to allow ourselves to feel love. We have the capacity to, to have that experience. And to me, that is sacredness, mm. this knowingness that we belong we can discover that in things that are just absolutely immediate in our life. The beholding the rising sun, you and I got up quite early this morning to come into the studio and, mm. and have this beautiful conversation. And we had the, the great valley of crossing the street yeah, <laughs> to get, get some brekkie and the sun was coming up. And we just took a moment, we stopped and we yeah. just looked at it and we yeah. were so filled with its lights and just the magnificence of it. And it really matched the the mood yeah. between us, the excitement that we were going to have this really great conversation and, yeah. and just our general spirit. It's reflective. It reflected back the truth of who we are. Mm. And this is prevalent everywhere. Mm. The easiest place to do it is with anything that we deem natural, you know, like mm. trees, plants, flowers, birds, the sound of a bird, you know, a butterfly, even flies that we normally like, mm. you know, just watching a fly and how they move around. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. You know, anything in nature, the way that the light is hitting the trees out there, if you just allow yourself to bathe your senses in natural phenomena, what you're doing is you're creating a circuitry with something that is going to feed you mm. with the truth. Mm. So if you're feeling disconnected, overwhelmed, anxious, mm. and no matter where you are, make a choice in that moment to let go of feeding and creating a circuitry with a line of thinking or a circumstance or an event or a person mm. that is sustaining dissonance mm. and just direct your attention with the intention to love something within nature mm. and just allow yourself, your heart and your awareness to massage that relationship. And the more you do it, it only takes 30, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, a couple of minutes before you immediately feel this, mm, okay, at least some relief that reminds you of the truth that we belong to this immensely mm. sacred reality and that we have a responsibility to surrender our defensiveness mm. and lead with love. Mm. We all have that power mm. and that's the new skill that we need to learn. And that is what I define as God. 
you know, is living, living it. Cause that's all nature is doing is it's seeking to serve itself. When we look at nature, you know, the biosphere, mm. what an ecosystem is, it's a, mm. it's a whole bunch of different things living in harmony with itself as one mm. thing, field of intelligence, serving and feeding itself to sustain balance. Mm. When we do something that violates this underlying field of intelligence, its primary objective is to sustain balance where everything has the vitality that it requires in order to progress forward mm. in unison with everything else, mm. evolving, changing, growing, expanding, mm. belonging, mm. belonging, mm. changing. Everything in nature is doing that. And we human beings are the only, as far as we're aware, creatures on this planet that have the ability to ignore that responsibility. Yeah. And we're so powerful that when we are in ignorance of it and we behave outside of the laws of nature, when we, when we violate the laws of nature, we create an enormous dissonance, an enormous imbalance. Which goes into the other beings, newborn beings and other people. Animals, species, Animals, yeah. you know, the, the rate of extinction on this planet is mind boggling. It's mind boggling. Thousands and thousands of species are going extinct every single day. It's like, I can't, you know, and some might say, well, you know, that's just nature and, you know, but a lot of it is anthropocentric, human generated impact right. on the environment. How do you process that knowledge? Through my heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, you know, I wake up every morning and I feel the, I feel the weight and the anxiousness of the world for sure. Mm. It is the reminder of my responsibility. It's what fuels me in the work that I do. You know, if everything was fine, I'd probably just live up in Byron Bay and be <laughs> painting and, <laughs> you know, surfing every day and mm. just, you know, living a life of luxury and leisure. <laughs> um, however, I feel an overwhelming sense of responsibility mm. to be in the world, being a voice to nature, mm. for nature, for our nature, a voice for love to contribute mm. to a solution mm. that we so desperately need right now. Mm. And then you just sense that as your responsibility. It's not like, because there's a part of me that goes, right, if I want to enjoy my life, I should just go do the Byron Bay idea. <laughs> yeah. The more love you feel, the more you become aware when others aren't. Mm. The more love you feel, the more sensitive you become to where it's absent, mm. Mm. where it's not. Mm. And it gets to a point where there is nothing else you can put your attention on other than where can I channel love? How can I channel love? Wherever I go, whatever I go, how can I? Because it's the single greatest need of our time. Yeah, Single greatest need is to be an agency of love, to be embodying that fulfillment and capability to connect with people and to grow with them and to be a support for each other mm. and to reinforce this understanding mm. that we have a responsibility to each other. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I can't conceive that I'll be resting until the day I die mm. because I just, I don't necessarily see, you know, this work being done in my lifetime. I mean, mm. humanity has got a long way to go, you know, <laughs> I think, mm. you know, if I can contribute to bringing us back from the brink of total annihilation, <laughs> mm. then, you know, I feel like I've contributed something, mm. something great. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't, you know, necessarily conceive of, 
uh, world peace as a reality in, in my lifetime because world peace is a very complex thing that mm. requires very high states of consciousness, you know, of, of a large a large group of people. Um, however, if I can increase the peace, increase the peace, mm. increase the, lo- the level of love, increase the level of capability to sustainably ex- coexist on the planet, then, you know, great. Mm. And that's that's what we need to just be mm. putting our attention on. And most people tend not to participate mm. or, or listen to their sense of responsibility because they feel defeated. They're like, what's the mm. point? Mm. It's so messed up. The world is so messed up. Mm. We need to shift from that outcome orientation to just process orientation. It's mm. not about an outcome. It's not about world peace. It's just about this moment right now. Mm. And if we want to change the world, we need to change it right now. And what changing, what transformation looks like is shifting our intention from what can I get from you to what can I, how can I serve you? Mm. That's and massive. It's as simple and as so that. simple. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's eminently achievable right now. Yeah. And yeah, everyone can do it right now. And how much do you take? I think that's fucking awesome that just that sentence in itself. It's so simple, isn't it? Yeah. You, as an individual, you're choosing to make this your work and your choosing. And so while it's nature flowing through you, it's also your choice, you know, like we, we've got will in this, haven't we? Or do you feel like you- Well, the more, like I said, the more love you feel, the more you feel where it's lacking. And I consider myself choiceless. Right. I would have to expend a lot of energy to ignore what I'm feeling. That's a really interesting way to see it. My will is thy will. <laughs> You know, it sounds corny and kind of well, biblical, yeah. but when I say thy will is, is thy will of the, that field of cosmic intelligence. It's acquired me fully. Mm. I surrender completely to it. I only ever want to live in accordance with it, in harmony with it, mm. never in violation of it. Because mm. a violation of this inherent, the laws that govern our humanity cause great dissonance in me. Mm an anxiety, a pain, you know, or you know immediately when you're stepping out of the parameters of Mm. what is conducive to greater harmony and connection Mm. and unity. And so I'm choiceless in that regard. That's beautiful. I love that you see it that way. I mean, there was a period of time where, you know, I was having to choose deliberately to let go of certain things certain resentments that I was harboring towards the world and things in my late teens. You know, there were things that I had to kind of let go of where I had to exercise my will. So we do. But once you, Mm. you break down those damn walls, Mm. it starts to flood. The will to serve is like a relentless torrenting Mm. surge that, you know, you (laughs) try and stop it. You Mm. can't, I can't stop this. So powerful. Uh, yeah. So I feel like we've acknowledged or like at least spoken to the space of people who believe in what God is in their perspective. Can you speak to the other side of the world of non-belief in this entity mm-hmm. or, or misunderstanding of what that entity is? Mm-hmm. Because I know personally, I have a few friends that are, don't believe in God, but are very, what I would deem spiritual or good people. <laughs> you know? yeah. it's, we don't need a God for ethics or morals. As far as I'm concerned, whether you believe in God or not is, it's not really relevant to the deeper fundamental need right now, which is to choose love, to surrender to love and to understand intimately what what that means and what the responsibility of that is. We don't require a belief in anything 
in order mm. to actualize our deepest nature and cause an effect of greater connection and unity. Mm. It's self-evident the value of that. Mm. Whereas, you know, the principle of faith is not always self-evident. Right. They're different things. I believe that the experience of unity enlivens one's inherent faith if you are faith-based. And for those that don't have a belief in God or an underlying in supreme intelligence of the universe, that doesn't preclude you from love. Mm. We all know what love is. We all know what it means to connect with somebody deeply and to feel that powerful connection and, and sense of belonging. And that is the most fulfilling thing that we can experience as human beings. And that's what we need to nurture. Mm. So the notion of God from, from my definition is, is an experience mm. of love and unity because that's my perspective. Other people have different definitions of God. Mm. And I don't think that talking about God in any absolute way is going to do us any service right now. Mm. And I think that talking about God in any absolute way is actually the root cause of some of the, the really big problems that we yeah, right, conflicts yeah. that we're facing in the world right now. Mm. And what we have is our humanity. And all we need to do is honor and nurture that mm. and let nature take care of the rest. <laughs> Juicy. <laughs> Juicy. It's so good. I thought we were going to talk about an array of different things, but like I, I like that this whole conversation can be around one thing that gives someone an a different perspective on something they may not have had before yeah. or they can learn a bit more about. Yeah, and I think, you know, what we, what we just discussed is probably the most relevant thing to people right now mm. that are trying to make sense of their existence mm. and find deeper meaning and mm. create some concepts, establish mm. some concepts in their, in their mind about mm. how to move forward, mm. I think. Well, you, practical. You bring it in in a way that's very beautiful, non-judgmental. It's, it's like your expression of nature is, I'm just so fond of it. Because yeah, <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's, it's inclusive. Yeah. And loving in isolation, it's like an oxymoron. Yeah. Loving with exclusivity, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> you know, love is all inclusive. Mm. And what we're seeking is the liberation of unity the liberation of belonging, knowing that we belong and to feel okay about our differences and to feel powerful enough to reconcile them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, you're the best. I want to have you like on my shoulder, a mini version of you, <laughs> always in my ear. But that's kind of what you are on my Voxer app. <laughs> pick away your dandruff and just snack. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you, Johnny. Massive love and appreciate. And anyone that follow, wants to follow you, just Google Johnny Pollard and you'll be able to find him on any channels. But his book that's coming out next year on yeah. 2018 is going to be Growth Evoking. Thanks, mate. You'll facilitate our evolution. Thank you for doing it.